So what we're going to talk about today is church discipline. Now, while they're getting the screen up there, I'll talk for just a second. Church discipline is one of those things that when you hear it, you most likely have had a negative experience with church discipline or you know somebody that has had a negative experience with it. And so when you hear the term, there is just like an instantaneous rejection of the term or well, we don't do that anymore or, or something of that nature. And, and I understand that because I've been through um, a couple of scenarios of church discipline and if it is not done correctly, it can be very painful and can cause people to never want to grace the, the doors of a church again. And so I understand why that is. But this is a phrase I want you to get into your mind. And the phrase is, confrontation is caring. Can y'all, can y'all say that? Confrontation is caring. When we ignore sin, when we ignore problems in people's lives, that's not caring for them. And as we know, the gospel is very clear that we are supposed to care about others in the same way as we care about ourselves. So when we're talking about church discipline, it was very near and dear to the Lord Jesus Christ's heart, as we saw in Matthew chapter 18, where he spent that into those entire few verses there, helping us to understand, helping his disciples understand how to manage conflict amongst ourselves. Because if we don't manage conflict amongst ourselves, it can be a very damaging situation. Uh, Many of you in our church went through the Peacemaker Ministry uh, for several months. We walked through Ken Sandy's uh, Peacemaker Ministry and then signed a peacemaking pledge after that saying that we would be personally responsible uh, to work these peacemaking principles out into our own lives. And I hope that you're doing that, those of you that signed that covenant that said you would be peacemakers. I hope you're doing that, and I hope you're beginning to see the results of that in your life. Because I fully believe, fully believe, that one of the missing theologies, missing doctrines in the church of Jesus Christ today is the fact that our average church member does not not handle conflict and disagreement well in the church. Typically what happens is, is a whole bunch of people have a disagreement about something, one side gets mad, and instead of working through the issues with one another, what do they do? They leave the church, and they go somewhere else, and they go to another church. And you say, well that's good that they left. Well, maybe, but it's not if they left with an angry, unforgiven heart, it's not. Because then what happens is, is the spirit is grieved in the church they left because there's unresolved issues and lack of reconciliation here among believers. And then those that leave take that grumbling spirit with them as they go to a different church. And so it can be a very detrimental, bad situation. So we have to understand how to deal with relationships in the church of Jesus Christ. Now, I'm just going to keep on going through this PowerPoint, and I would just read it to you so you know, because it doesn't look like it's going to come up for some reason. So let me try again here. Try again. Maybe it's on my side. Let's see. All right, I'll try to connect it again. Here we go. All right, it definitely did something that time. There we go. We got it. All right, here we go. So what is church discipline? So as Christians, and these are questions, and we don't have a sanctuary. We don't, well, we have a sanctuary. We don't have con- a big congregation uh, filled sanctuary today. So I'm going to need you guys, and I'll try to answer the question as we go along. So as Christians, are we to live on our own? No. 
That's the Lone Ranger mentality that we talked about during, during the church membership message. We are meant for community as believers in Jesus Christ. Question number two, do we have responsibilities toward each other? And the answer is yes, of course we do. This morning, we had responsibility to you as a congregation. We woke up, we had people that got here. We realized there was ice on the roads. We said, hey, you know, we probably, some people probably have four-wheel drives and some people probably could get here, but a lot of people don't have four-wheel drives and don't have snow tires, and they may try to get here out of obligation, but they may have a wreck and get hurt. So we had to make a decision to cancel church this morning and do it on live feed. We have responsibilities toward each other. Will all of our responsibilities toward each other be pleasant and positive? No. Now, we would like for all of them to be, and I don't think there's a problem with us wanting them to be pleasant and positive. I mean, nobody wants to go through life having to deal with a bunch of negative things and a bunch of conflict, but the fact of the matter is, is if you've been friends with somebody or you've been in a church long enough, or especially if you've been married to somebody long enough, at some point, you're gonna have problems and you're gonna have issues. And those responsibilities that you have toward one another are going to cause some awkward and conflictive conversations. Hence, church discipline. Do we have the responsibility to speak to each other honestly about one another's faults, shortcomings, departure from Scripture, or specific sins? Of course we do. Could the severe nature of these mandate public confrontation yes one of the things that has aggravated our country over the past several years has been the disequilibrium of the way specific situations are treated on both sides there seems to be a hypocrisy and how certain responsibilities are maintained. And many people will say things like, well, there's no discipline. That person continues to do this with impunity. This person continues to do this with impunity. And it makes us, it makes us angry because there doesn't seem to be accountability where it needs to be. Same situation in our personal relationships. We must have accountability in our, in our, in our personal relationships, and sometimes those relationships, the, the problems in those relationships mandate public confrontation. But the public confrontation, I cannot say this loud enough, long enough, or many, too many times, it must be done the right way, with the heart of Jesus, not in a heart of flesh, but in the heart of the Spirit, okay? Is our modern day perception of church discipline negative? Yes, can y'all agree to that? Yes it is, it is negative. What do we think of when we think about discipline? What do you think of? David, what do you think of? Getting a spanking, that's great, exactly. Who got a spanking when they were a kid, anybody? I got so many I couldn't count them. That's why I turned out so good, amen? No, I'm just kidding. But anyway, we think of getting in trouble, getting in trouble for doing something wrong. We get disciplined, right? We get a spanking or we get punished in some way. But not all discipline is punishment. Discipline is needed because we are unfinished products and will remain that way until the day we die and we need help. Would y'all agree that I need help? Would y'all agree that you need help? No matter how many degrees we got, no matter how much money we got, no matter how, how influential we are, no matter what great physical condition we're in, it doesn't matter, all of us need help. That's where discipline comes in. So what are some objections to church discipline? 
Why would we not want to do church discipline? Well, I mean, didn't Jesus say to judge not lest you be judged? That should be lest, not let. Well, yeah, but that's severely taken out of context. What Jesus was talking about there is, is hypocritical judgment. Before you call out the speck in your brother's eye, what should you check in your own eye first? the log that is in yours. It doesn't mean that you're not supposed to judge them. It means that you judge them soundly and fairly with the word of God as the measure. But our culture, I mean, there's Christians out there that'll throw that up. Well, we're not supposed to judge. Well, we're not supposed to judge. Well, we're not supposed to judge. But all through the pastoral epistles. I mean, this Bible, Paul's letters to all these different churches would not be in the Bible if we were not supposed to judge because that's what Paul did. He saw incorrect behavior, he saw incorrect theology, and he wrote a letter. He judged it, and he wrote a letter, and he corrected it. So we make judgments every day. So try to get that demonic theology, because that's what it is, it's demonic theology, get that demonic belief out of your head because we are supposed to judge. Now don't, don't do what the Pharisees did, don't be going around judging all the time. Okay, only sound judgment and only according to the measure of God. Next, we just, here's another thing people say. We just need to what? Mind our own business. We are all sinners and we just need to live and let live and just forgive. Have you ever heard that? Sure you have. Have you ever used those terms? Sure you have, I've used them. And you know what? Sometimes, in certain situations, that's okay. If, if the offense is not that serious, if it's not that big a deal, you can let love cover the offense. You can let it go. You, you don't have to necessarily confront it, and you can live and let live and just forgive. But you can't always do that. And most people go running, running for that mindset in everything that happens in their life, and it's not healthy. Because over time, you, you may even let yourself be abused not being willing to confront the situation that you're dealing with, okay? Here's another thing people say. We just need to ignore it and what? I want, is anybody out there on live stream, anyone out there, I want you to find that sentence in the Bible if you can. Find that taught in the scripture. It's not there. There are certain things that we do need to let God work out because we really basically have no control over them whatsoever. But there are some things that we absolutely do not need to ignore and that we must get involved because God has commanded us to do so. And these are the passages that I'm talking about here this morning. And then here's, here's one that I've heard my entire life as a minister. Oh, no. They hear the term church discipline. Oh, no. Administering church discipline will what? Tear up the church. Now, let me just say this. If taking God's word and applying it to God's church tears up God's church, guess what it's not? God's church. It's not God's church. If applying God's word to a group of folks that claim to be the church tears, that church, tears that, those people up, that, that wasn't a church to begin with. The church of Jesus Christ receives his word, amen? Receives it. We believe it and we receive it and we try to practice it, not perfectly, but we try to practice it as best we can. So if it's really a church, applying church discipline is not gonna tear it up. So what does the Bible say about this dreaded doctrine, church discipline? There are basically two types of discipline. 
and this is out, this is just discipline in general, church, outside of church, inside of church, two types of discipline, formative and corrective. Formative is what we would consider positive discipline. If you wanted to classify that as positive and negative, formative would be more positive discipline. Uh, some examples would be the stake that helps the tree grow in the right direction. Like if a tree is beginning to sag this way and you take a rope and tie it to it and bend it back up, you know, for several months to help it out, that's, that's positive. It's the braces that are on the teeth. I had braces when I was a kid. My mouth was all messed up. And that dentist put, put these braces on my teeth. And, and I just watched it in the mirror. And over time, those crooked teeth became very straight and very perfect. I could speak better. I could eat better. My teeth didn't like rub into my gums and all that kind of stuff. But it's that slow, steady pressure. That's formative discipline. Training wheels on a bicycle. Think, about, think of it that way. Can't ride a bike at first, you get on it, you fall, so the training wheels kind of help you learn how to keep your balance. Or here's one of my favorites, keeping your mouth closed when eating, right? Because we don't want to be smacking at the table and annoying everybody. So that, those are formative types of formative discipline. The, the, think of it as basic shaping that takes place in your family and church. Make sure that someone seeking membership understands the church polity and doctrine. That is we have really tried to do here at Woodland Baptist since I've been here. As soon as I walked in the door, uh, Brother Colton told me one of the first things we need to do is really get on top of membership because we just don't have a good procedure. We really don't have a good, a good policy. You know, we're, we're, we're trying to start doing some things to, to help it, but, but it just wasn't there. So one of the things that we try to do is to make sure that people that come here that are interested in joining our church, that they join, that they understand our polity and our doctrine. Because the absolute worst thing that can happen is somebody coming here all excited. Maybe they watched a service on, on, online or something. The music's great and they think the preaching's great. Then they come here and three or four months later, the, the, the preacher preaches on church discipline and they're completely against that. And then what happens? What do they do? At worst, they try to stir up a dissension against the pastor and against the staff and against the church talking about how they don't agree with that and we shouldn't do that and all this kind of stuff. At best, they walk out the door and they never come back. And, then, and none, neither one of those are good scenarios. So that's formative, formative discipline. The other type is corrective. And corrective discipline is the one that gives us kind of that awkward, heavy feeling in our heart. You know, it's like when you got caught doing something wrong and you get that, that guilty feeling inside your heart. I don't know if you've ever been corrected at a job you've had. I've, I've been corrected throughout my life for whatever reason. Discipline just kind of followed me everywhere I went. And it was that, that, that feeling where I remember one time years ago before I was a believer, I was supposed to run this, uh, this, this fuel company on Saturday mornings. My job was to get there at about 6.30 in the morning and call all the gas stations and they were supposed to go outside and and take that measuring stick and stick it down in the tank and call it into me. Then I was supposed to dispatch the trucks to send it so they didn't run out of gas on Saturday. Well, I was out late the night before, so guess what Shelby did on Saturday morning? He slept in. And I woke up to my boss calling me on my telephone. And guess what I did like a dummy? Answered it. He said, what are you doing at home? It's 8 o'clock. You're supposed to be there at 6.30. So I got in trouble. I got sent home for a couple days without pay. It was not fun. But do you think I ever overslept on a Saturday again? No, I did not because I did not like that. So corrective discipline, confronting belief and behavior that is what? Wrong. Now, where we're headed in our, in our land and probably all over the world, for argument's sake, is that there is no longer a right or a wrong. 
for our, for our purposes as the church of Jesus Christ, we, we get our right from the Bible, amen? If the Bible teaches it, we believe it's right. If the Bible teaches that it's wrong, we believe it's wrong. So confronting belief and behavior that is wrong. So just, just a couple of examples. Insubordination to authority. Insubordination to authority. Arguing against what the Bible clearly teaches. Well, the Bible doesn't say that. Well, yes, it does. Here, here's the chapter verse. It says it right there. Well, I, well, I, well, that may be what the Bible says, but that's not for me. So I'm not going to believe, well, then, then that's, too, that's terrible because you're a Christian, you're supposed to believe what the whole Bible says. So that's corrective discipline. Treating fellow church members disrespectfully. That needs correction. That needs corrective discipline. If you are a church member and you're treating another church member disrespectfully, that needs correction. Gossip, these are, these are pretty self-explanatory. Gossip, slander, deception, outright lying, stealing, adultery, major stuff there. All of that needs corrective discipline. Discipline, needs corrective discipline, okay? Uh, here's some, now I've got several passages and I'm gonna read very slowly, but these are, don't, and don't, live feet, don't go to sleep on me, don't, don't drift away, just hang in there with me on these passages. This is the word of God. Everything else has been topical, now we're getting to the exposition of the meat of the text. Why do we believe discipline is important in the church? I'm fixing to give you the scriptures, I'm fixing to give you God's word. So please, please, brothers and sisters, pay attention to these texts. Hebrews 12, three through six. Consider him, meaning Jesus, who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. In your struggle against sin, you have not resisted to the point of shedding your blood meaning he shed his blood on Calvary's cross to forgive everybody's sins. Have you, have you gone that far to, to keep from sinning? That's what he means by that. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? Then he quotes Proverbs, a chapter out of Proverbs. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him, for the Lord disciplines the one he what? Loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons, the second time he said that. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? You are left without discipline in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them, Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them, but he disciplines us for our good that we may share in his holiness, meaning God disciplines us for our good. For the moment, and this is this, I mean, think about this. For the moment, all discipline seems what? Painful rather than pleasant but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. You know, Steve, uh, our, our music minister, pointed out something to me this morning that just, it just grabbed me. I'm like, you know, he's exactly right about that. We came in kind of chuckling about the fact that we had a live feed today, and he said, we have been trained for months and been, and been preparing for months for this moment this what he meant by that was, was that when COVID hit and we had to, everybody had to quarantine and we had to live feed, we realized 
that our live feed needed to be, needed to be bumped up a notch or two. And so that caused us to begin to talk, to look at hiring Nathan to help us do things. And so that discipline was not necessarily pleasant at the time, having to get on the telephone and call suppliers and have discussions and try to get everybody on the same page with what we're doing and, and all that kind of stuff. That was just not something that you like eagerly look forward to do. But we did it. And now we see the fruit of it, which was this morning when suddenly we realized that everything's iced over, what can we do in a matter of seconds? Cancel church and go to a live feed. So that is fruit. Do you see that? So that's what discipline does to us in our lives. And so, so don't always look at these painful things, and that was the whole point of, of the author in Hebrews, after he had pointed uh, through uh, Hebrews chapter 11 and done that in 12 and given us that whole hall of faith and all those heroes of the faith in the Old Testament down through times, so he was trying to help us to see that, that all of them went through discipline. It was all for a purpose, all for a purpose so they would have the fruit of righteousness. So when you're going through discipline, do not knock it. Embrace it and enjoy it. I know that sounds weird, but, but, but know that God is working for your good when you go through those things. I'm telling you, because that morning I woke up and answered that telephone and my boss went into the, to the, to the, um, to the company and did my responsibilities that day. Then he called me into his office on Tuesday and sat me down with one of the most serious, I mean, I thought he was gonna fire me with the most serious face I'd ever seen on a, on a boss before to that time. He said, uh, he said, Bubba, that's what he called me. He said, Bubba, uh, I, I'm, I'm going to I'm gonna have, to, I'm gonna have to knock you pay for a couple of days this week you know, for, for, dis, for disciplinary actions for you being late that morning. That could have cost us a lot. If you hadn't got up here and got those stations filled up, they may have run out of gas. It would have co cost our customers a lot of money. So, so you've, got, you've got to learn. And so he disciplined me, and he sent me home. And guess what? I was never late again. My Friday nights, when I had to work on Saturday, I was home in bed by nine o'clock. I was up at 5.30 the next morning, and I, was at the, I beat everybody to that place and made sure those gas stations were run. So discipline is for our good. Don't forget that. Next passage. Matthew 18, we've already read this one. I'm gonna read it again because it's, it's so underused uh, in our lives and in our churches. Now remember, this is Jesus, and Jesus is, is, is preaching this to his apostles and those that are probably on the periphery with them. And he says, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, Tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Because by that time, what you have exposed in the heart of this individual that will not listen is the fact that they, they believe that them being right about whatever it is that, that the offense is over is more important to them than belonging and being in fellowship with their church and belonging and being in fellowship with their fellow believers the person that's really in the wrong, that's truly in the wrong. And at that point, you have exposed, you have exposed sin in their heart. And so, to, and according to the scripture, they, they could very well not be in the covenant of God and in the church of Jesus Christ, so they're treated as a Gentile and tax collector. And is that a pleasant thing to do? Absolutely, positively not. It is very painful and very difficult, but the Bible completely calls for it. Okay, 1 Corinthians 5. This is probably one of the most difficult situations 
uh, that is narrated in the entire Bible, in my opinion, especially in the New Testament. Uh, just, just read it, and then I'll comment on it for a second. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans. For a man has his father's wife. Now, do y'all understand what that is? A man has taken his father's wife. So a man's son has taken his dad's wife. Very, very weird, very sick, completely condemned in Scripture. And of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans, meaning that even the pagan world shames people that act this way. So how, how much more should it be loathed in the church of Jesus Christ? And he says, and you are arrogant. Meaning probably there were people joking about it and laughing about it at church. <laughs> Man, did you hear about so-and-so? He, got, he, got, he, took his daddy, he took his daddy's wife. Can you believe that? I mean, we should be mortified if we were ever to hear a story like that. Our heads should hang and we should, tears should come out of our eyes and we should immediately begin to pray and figure out a way to intervene in the situation, not be arrogant and be boastful and laugh about it. But that is, that is the sentiment that Paul is saying Corinth had about this situation. And it's horrible. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. For though absent in body, I am present in spirit, and as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus and my spirit is present, this is Paul still talking about the same situation. And my spirit is present with the power of the Lord Jesus. You are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Now, you don't hear that. When was the last time you heard that preached on TBN? You've never heard that preached on TBN because most people probably don't even want to accept the fact that that's in Scripture. And you will hear all different types of, of justification for this or reasons why this is not for the church today. But I'm telling you, this is for us today in the church of Jesus Christ. And Jesus said it in a different way. He said, treat them as a what? Gentile or a tax collector, meaning treat them as people that are outside the covenant of God. So he says in this, for this man that has done this horrible sin that is, that is true, I mean, we're, 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 we're assuming that it is true, this is not just hearsay, this is an actual thing that has happened in the church of Jesus Christ. And Paul is saying, do not, do not um, deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I wrote to you in my letter, same situation, Paul continuing to write in 1 Corinthians 5. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. Not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters. Since then you would need to go out of the world. But now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty 
of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to, say it, eat with such a one. Now, how in the world are a bunch of Baptists going to obey that? Amen? How are a bunch of Baptists going to, whose lives, the focal point of our life is eating, going to eat after church, eating dinner, we put it on Facebook, we've got all time. But that's what, that's what Paul is saying here. Paul is saying that what this man has done is so grievous that you do, not, you do not need to be seen with him, you do not need to fellowship with him, you certainly do not need to go and sit down for a long period of time and commune together over a fellowship meal until he does what? until he comes to repentance over what he has done. And that all serves a purpose. He says, what about, what about evangelism? I mean, if he's truly lost and he's really, he's really in sin, what about evangelism? Well, call him on telephone. Call him on telephone. Talk to him. You write him a letter. Do something. But Paul is very, very explicit here. All through the New Testament, we are the fellowship of believers together represents the holiness of the Lord Jesus Christ. And if there is a member that has breached that through multiple different ways, part of the, part of the mechanism God has put in place in the New Testament is for that relationship to not be normal until the time where the other person repents and comes back. Now that's hard for Americans. We don't like that. It's not polite. It's not socially acceptable, okay? But near, neither is the gospel, amen? Neither is the gospel. I can assure you the gospel is not socially acceptable. So anyway, hard words from Paul. Take this man that has done this sin, turn him over to Satan, which means put him out of the protective grace of the church of Jesus Christ. And while we're talking about anybody else that fits this description, not meaning worldly people that are not a part of the church, I'm not talking about those people. I'm talking about those that consider themselves Christians not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. Tough, hard words. One of the reasons why most churches today do not practice church discipline because we are not able to do that. We just can't do it. We can't bring ourselves to that point to say, this person is in sin, what has happened is true, and I, am, I have got to withhold my fellowship from that person to, so that they can understand the gravity of what they have done by me pulling my fellowship back from them until they awaken to the realization of what they have done. That's what the Bible says, and that's why we don't do it. Galatians 6.1, brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you are who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted, bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. So those in the church that are mature, when someone is caught in any transgression, not necessarily the, the situation we were just talking about because that is, that is grievous, but any type of sin, we who are spiritual go to them, confront them over their sin, using Matthew 18, one, two, three, hopefully they come to their senses and come back. If they don't, eventually through that, they are expelled from the church. Second Thessalonians three. Now we command you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, 
that you keep away from any brother who is walking in idleness and not in accord with the tradition that you have received us, received from us. For you yourselves know how you ought to imitate us because we were not idle when we were with you. Nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it, but with toil and labor we worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you. It was not because we do not have that right, but to give you in ourselves an example to imitate. For even when we were with you, we would give you this command. If anyone is not willing to work, let him not what? Yeah, eat. Our teenagers need to hear that, amen? Amen. For we hear that some among you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busy bodies. Now such persons we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly and to earn their own living. As for you, brothers, do not grow weary in doing good. If anyone does not obey what we say in this letter, take note of that person and have nothing to do with him that he may be ashamed. Do not regard him as an enemy, but warn him as a brother. Yeah, these are the passages that you don't hear about too much. And you don't hear about these passages because they're very difficult. They just are. And, and, and to us, as modern day Americans, it seems mean. It does. But it's not mean. Because confrontation is what? Caring. Confrontation is caring. If we don't care, we won't be involved at all. And being obedient to scripture, this is one of those things that's a supernatural deal. Because in our own hearts and in our own minds as, as people, we cannot see how this could possibly be beneficial. And we're never to do it mean-spirited. Never to do it mean-spirited. Just for instance, if I were to uh, bump into a certain individual years ago that, that caused me a lot of grief in a church that I believe fits 1 Corinthians 5 to a T, if I were to bump into him out in public somewhere, let's just say I, I, he, was, he was standing here and I was standing here and I turned my face to him right here and he tried to engage me in conversation and, and, and pretended that nothing was wrong. You ever had one of those? You got a big confrontation with somebody, they, they've hurt you real bad, you see them out in public and they act like nothing's wrong, like you're their best buddy from high school. I stop him dead cold in this conversation and I say, hey, John Doe, I appreciate the fact that you're being real nice about this, but I'm still very hurt by what happened several months ago. You've been talking to people all over town about it and you have yet to come to me and apologize to me for what happened and make amends with me. So until that day comes, you as a professing believer, you and I, we're not okay. And at that particular time, hopefully he will do what? Oh, I'm sorry, I had no, I had no, I, please, please, please forgive me, I am so sorry. Now what do I do when he does that? Hey, thank you brother, no problem. But that's not what that guy did that day. You deserve what you got. You know you shouldn't have done what you did. And I said, what, did, what exactly did I do? And it went on and on and on. I could tell real quick, I was getting nowhere, so the discussion was ended and I, and I, and I left. Okay, so th this is real spiritual warfare. Does everybody understand that? This is real spiritual warfare. The pleasantries and social graces that are out in the public, when it comes to the church of Jesus Christ, this amps it up a notch. This is spiritual warfare. You can't just give pleasantries to people and be okay with people that are out there that are actively trying to destroy God's work. You can't. 
That's why one of the best ploys that Satan ever put in our minds was judge not lest ye be judged. Because we think everybody has just got a right to go believe, do, and say whatever they want to say. And that is not what the Bible says. Period. Sorry. Got a little emotional there. 1 Timothy 1, 18 and 20. This charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare, holding faith and a good conscience. By rejecting this, some have made shipwreck of their faith, among whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. What Paul means by that is he's obviously got, had, a, had, a, had a relationship with these two men. Obviously, maybe, maybe, maybe one time they followed him in ministry. Many believe that Alexander the coppersmith was poss possibly had followed Paul for a while and then turned on Paul and began to attack his ministry. They, and I know Paul by his spirit and his letters. I can promise you that Paul tried a little back and forth with Alexander, tried to bring him back around to a proper orthodoxy, and Alexander wasn't having any part of it. And so Paul backed away. He was, under, he was obviously under the influence of Satan, obviously under the influence of, of a demonic influence. And so he broke the relationship, handed him over to Satan, continued to pray for him, but then warned everybody else to stay away from the guy because he was dangerous to the faith. He had shipwrecked his faith, and if you believe what he believes and do what he does, you're probably going to shipwreck yours too. And so this is a nurturing, shepherding heart that Paul has. And to some outside the church that are not spiritual and that are natural, it's hard to understand all this. It seems mean and uncaring, but in fact, it is the most caring thing you can do. Think about Israel. What did God do to Israel? The northern kingdom destroyed them, sent them into exile, lost forever. What did he do to the southern kingdom? Destroyed them, sent them into Babylon, sent them back after 70 years. That was love. Love is why God did that, to try to burn idolatry out of them, to try to cleanse them as a people so they could be the kingdom of priests that he meant for them to be. Discipline serves a purpose, an eternal spiritual purpose. 1 Timothy 5, 19, 20. Do not admit against an elder, it'd be a guy like me, a pastor, except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. Don't just take anybody's word, anybody that brings an accusation against a man of God. You don't just believe everything you hear. That's what Paul's trying to say because we are in, we are in the devil's crosshairs. I mean, people will make up stuff about us all the time, and 99% of the time, there is not a shred of proof or a shred of truth about it. So it has to, so Paul sets this standard, two or three witnesses. Don't entertain an accusation unless there's two or three witnesses. And as those who persist in sin, meaning elders, rebuke them in the presence of all so that the rest may stand in fear. What is that saying? That's saying that pastors and elders are not above what? Correction. Exactly, we're not above correction at all, exactly. Titus 3, 9 through 11. But avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions and quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. As for a person who stirs up division after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him, knowing that such a person is warped and sinful, he is self-condemned. Did everybody hear that? Let's go over that one more time. Avoid foolish controversies, foolish controversies, 
Genealogies, do y'all remember the Da Vinci Code? That was a foolish controversy, genealogy. Dissensions, quarrels about the law, which teacher is more important, for they are unprofitable and worthless. As for a person who stirs up division, for a person that goes to this one, this one, this one, this one, and takes that, whatever that argument is, and your side wanting to kind of build an army of people that support you, that's called a dissension, building that after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him, knowing that such a person is warped and sinful, he is self-condemned. Again, not something you're gonna hear every day in the pulpits of love around America. And when I say love, I don't mean biblical love. I mean the pulpits of this erotic American love, this materialistic idea, this lustful idea, not biblical love, okay? This is, this is biblical pulpit preaching, the hard stuff along with the good stuff. If we don't have a proper balance of all of this, we are, we are gonna, we're, we're not, God's not gonna honor it, and the church will be weak and it will not survive. So now, that's enough, of the, that's all, not enough, that's all the scriptures. So how have Christians in the past handled church discipline? Anybody know? Leaders from the 1800s considered their most important tasks to faithfully preach the word and administer godly discipline. What is it today? What is the, the, the most important duty that the pastor does today? Do what the deacons tell him? <laughs> is that kind of what it is? Do what his wife tells him? I, I don't, I'm just being funny. But back in the 1800s, back in the 1800s, not that long ago, the most important things that the preacher looked at and the pastor looked at was to faithfully preach the word of God and administer godly discipline, to watch over the flock and those that were wandering to go after them in godly discipline. Pre, I was shocked to read this statistic. Pre-Civil War churches excommunicated 2% of their membership every year. And guess what those churches did exponentially? Grew. You know why? Because they took God's word and God's church seriously. This wasn't a social club. It wasn't a place to come out, for, come out for potluck fellowships. It wasn't a place to just hang out and, and play games. It wasn't a place to, to just do things that you enjoy. It was a place for God's worship and God's theology and to build up missionaries for the world. And so they excommunicated 2% of their membership every year. There were regular meetings to discuss the spiritual condition of membership and take action accordingly. accordingly. Uh, they called these membership meetings. You can read about this in the, in, the old, in the old bylaws and constitutions from churches years ago. They had them. And in the Lord's Supper, they would be given, they would be given a, a two or like a month or, or several week notice when the Lord's Supper came and they were encouraged to go to anyone in the congregation or the community that they had an issue with and resolve that issue before they came to the Lord's Supper. Why would they be so persistent about that? Because they took the Bible seriously. Because Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 17 through 39, that if you came to the table unworthily, you could die. Pastors didn't want to dead people at the, at the Lord's Supper, would you? No. So there were regular meetings to discuss the spiritual condition of membership and take action accordingly. So why did churches stop practicing church discipline? Why did this happen? Well, churches began to adopt social norms and stopped confronting sin. I mean, honestly, in the world today, outside the church, 
How much of confronting behavior do you see? Even those that are on the front line are police officers that are, that are commissioned to serve and protect. Even, even they are constantly, and some of them need to be, obviously, there are some that, that, that go overboard, we know that, but for the majority, most of them do not. For the majority, most of them are good men and women that are trying to do their jobs, but yet they are held back from imposing discipline on certain, on certain matters. And they have been persecuted and they have been sued and put in the social media so bad, they are, nowadays, they are afraid to do their jobs because this country has so revolted against discipline only in certain areas. And what about the church? We let these social norms come into the church and we stop confronting sin. Churches began to replace the pursuit of holiness with the pursuit of efficiency. That's what we've done. The business model, this is my personal, my personal belief, the business model of church has replaced the biblical model of church. The business model has replaced the biblical model. That's why the, the sermon, if it goes longer than 30 minutes and we stay in a book of the Bible too long, people get discontent and they get a little, they get angst in their heart. If it's not the right kind of music, if we, if we sing all four stanzas of a hymn, if we don't do the offering at a particular time, if I don't get to sit where I wanna sit in the sanctuary, if we do anything different that I don't like, I moan and cry about it because this is a business, I'm a consumer, and I want it my way like Burger King. No amen? That's a biblical model. Biblical. What is that? Read the Bible, study the Bible, apply the Bible. This is not fun and games, this is heaven and hell. This is Jesus Christ who died on Calvary's cross for the sins of the world. What are we doing to advance that mission cause in the world? What are we doing? Business model has replaced the, the biblical model. I mean, after all, why would we confront sinners and potentially lose tithers, right? You see sarcasm in the brackets, right? That's sarcasm on my part. So if we apply church discipline today, when, we would, when would we need to exercise church discipline? And, and, and don't, look, listen, the last time Last time I was at a church years ago and I preached on this and talked about this, I mean, people went absolutely crazy. I got phone calls and email. People were scared to death. Are you fixing to start? What are you fixing to start doing? What are y'all fixing to start? We're not doing anything different than we've already done. Nothing. I've, 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 told, I've told Parkway Baptist Church a thousand times before we do anything, any form of massive change in this church, who's going to know about it? Who's going to vote on it? You? Now, I personally believe that we shouldn't have to vote on whether or not to be obedient to Scripture. Can I get a witness? Okay. But on something like this, if we're going to have a, if we're going to have a upscaled ministry policies and I mean a membership policies and things of that nature, then then yes, that that will be something that we discuss for for probably months before anything is done. So don't hear this live feed and get afraid and start looking for other churches that don't practice. Don't, don't do that. We're, it's not gonna be like that. It's just not gonna be like that. I'm giving you the truth of what God's word says. That's my job is to give you the truth of what God's word says and that's what I'm doing. So if we applied church discipline today, when would we need to exercise church discipline? I'm gonna give you some, just some examples here, okay? First one, any known outward violations 
of the moral law, lying, stealing, and adultery. If somebody came to me and told me somebody was doing that, am I gonna take them on their word and go do it and discipline that person? Of course not. That person's gonna get a chance to speak for themselves. There will need to be other witnesses. That's, you, don't, you don't just knee-jerk response go after something like that. You, you should know me better than that. For pursuing, church discipline would be applied for pursuing any course which may, in the judgment of the church, be disreputable to it as a body. So if you are involved in something outside the church that is immoral or wrong that could bring disrepute on Parkway Baptist Church, that may be a situation where we would need to be confronted, right? Why would that be? Because, God, what, what example do I use here without like just going crazy? Let's just say that you owned a private gambling casino in your garage. Is that benign enough? Surely nobody's doing that here this morning, right? <laughs> if you had a, ga a small gambling casino that you were running out of your garage, is that Christian behavior? I mean, I mean no, you should not be running a gambling casino in your, in your garage. And so if word got out about that to me and you're a deacon in the church or a church member at our church, what should we do if we are good shepherds of your heart and soul? We should approach you and ask you, why are you doing this? How long has this been going on? Do you know, do you know this is gonna give us a bad reputation in the community? Because then everybody in the community is gonna know that guy goes to Parkway Baptist Church, but he's got a gambling casino in his garage and makes thousands of dollars off people. That can't be, okay? For being absent habitually without good reason from church assembly time, this is where the modern day Baptist Church will go insane, okay? Because there are people that are on membership roles that are absent from, from, from the body for months, years at a time. And, and hear me, hear me, hear me. I am not talking about people that are staying home for, for COVID. I'm not talking about people that are out of town going to visit families. I'm not talking about normal reasons that a believer would be out of church. Maybe, maybe you're a paraplegic and you can't get it. Whatever, I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about somebody that is physically, completely capable of coming to church, being a member of a church, and never darkening the doors, waking up and watching Gilligan's Island instead of going to church, right? Just blowing church off because you don't wanna go. That's the kind of people I'm talking about. For holding and advocating doctrines opposed to those set forth in the church's statement of faith. Doctrinal purity in the church, okay? For neglecting or refusing to contribute financially to the church according to their means. Notice according to their means. Not, every, not everybody can give hundreds and thousands of dollars of every year. That's why I always say, if you're, not, if you're a member of a church and you're not giving, give something. Give something. 10% is, the, is, the, is the, general, the general biblical rule that we've always followed, but the New Testament, uh, Paul says in Corinthians to give according to means. I like that. I like that for actively working against the ministries of the church or pursuing a course calculated to produce discord. This is probably the thing that I've seen the most in my time. I have seen disgruntled people leave a church for whatever reason, don't like the pastor, don't have anything for kids, don't have this, don't have that, preaches too long here, whatever. They leave that church, they go to another church, then while they're at that church, they get on the telephone and call everybody they know from the other church and try to pull them to that church. That's wrong. That shouldn't be done. 
or their perception of something that's going on here is evil, and so they're going around telling everybody in the community what's going on here is evil when it's not evil at all. They don't understand what the Bible says about it, but they think it's evil, so they're telling everybody it's evil. That's wrong. Actively working against the ministries of the church or pursuing a course calculated to produce discord. For divulging to persons outside the church what is done in the meetings of the church. Now what this means is, is that if you're a member of this church and there is some sensitive issue that is being talked about in the church that involves a family or our finances, I mean something that's a big deal, not just normal stuff that we would put on the website, but intimate stuff that only you have privy to because of your committee involvement or being a deacon or whatever, and you take that information and you share it with people who are in no formal way related to this church, that should not happen. That is unbrotherly, that is wrong, and that should not happen, and it can have correction. For pursuing any course of conduct unbecoming good citizens and professing Christians. One of the most recent things that have been in the news over the past several years is, is, is abuse. Physical and sexual abuse is one of the things that have been out there a lot that's been going on. That would need to be corrected. So why practice church discipline? We're almost done, about, about three more slides. Why practice church discipline? Is everybody okay, y'all good? Thumbs up, everybody? Nobody's doing the thumbs up. Okay, a few people are. All right. <clears throat> For the good of the person disciplined, the primary reason why you do it is because you've got an individual who is a professing Christian that has some form of, uh, of sin in their life or behavior in their life, and it, it, is, it is clearly causing them problems, causing their family problems, causing the church problems. It's just, uh, you know, th there's just problems radiating for the, from this person. This sin that they're dealing with has just got this ripple effect of problems in their life. And so the discipline that you bring on that is not, is not to, to purposely be mean or cause pain. It is to help this individual. It is to help them. Just like the example that I gave you of me oversleeping that, that, that day and going to work. That, that discipline helped me. It helped me realize that on Friday night I can't lay out all night. As, as an unbeliever working, I, I couldn't do that. I had to go home and get a good night's sleep so I could wake up early in the morning and get to work. It helped. So it's for the good of the person being disciplined. For the good of other Christians as they see the danger of sin. You know what, this, uh, th this couple I tell you what, I don't, I don't know about your church, but I know at Parkway Baptist Church, we had this couple, and, and their marriage was, was struggling really difficult, and our church reached out to them and got involved with them and helped them, and, and they didn't just like try to sweep it under the rug. They, they, they prayed for them, they helped them financially, they, they counseled them with the scripture, and now their marriage is healthier than it's ever been. That's, that's the kind of thing we're talking about. For the health of the church as a whole, because healthy members yield a healthy church, amen? For the corporate witness of the church. Parkway Baptist Church takes care of their members. They're serious about membership at their church. They're serious about sin at their church. You're not gonna go to Parkway Baptist Church and just sit in a pew and not do anything. They want you involved, they want you to mature, they want you to, they want you to be a go-getter for the kingdom of God. For the glory of God as we reflect his holiness. So what if we don't practice church discipline, what happens? Well, John Dagg wrote this. When discipline leaves the church, Christ goes with it. And I got a scripture to back that up in just a second. If we don't practice church discipline, the Spirit's power is grieved because the holiness and purity of the church slowly erodes away to nothing. Here's the passage. This is after Matthew 18. This is the bottom couple of scriptures in your Bible. After he tells them the one, two, three steps, he says, truly I say to you, 
Whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by the Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. How many times have you heard that last, that last verse? Did you know it was in the context of church discipline? That's the context that that verse is in. Listen to it again. Where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. Whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. So we as the church of Jesus Christ have the responsibility to reflect heaven's will on earth. So whenever somebody walks down this aisle and says they wanna join Parkway Baptist Church and they get baptized, what are we telling the world? That person's what? Saved. We're saying they're a Christian. When that same, that same person five years later is now selling drugs on street corners and doing all kind of ungodly things and he's still a member of this church and people know he's still a member of this church, what are we telling the world? We're telling them that we don't know what we're doing. We said he was saved five or six years ago, he's still on our rolls, but now he's out there acting like this and we're not doing anything about it. We are not doing the binding and loosing that God has called us to do. And you let, you let two or three generations of that lackadaisical behavior go on in the church of Jesus Christ, you're liable to have a church full of lost people that don't even know who Jesus Christ is. That's why this is so important. Let's read this passage one more time and we'll close. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. And where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. So do you not think it's ironic, life and everybody else, of what today is in the world and God and his sovereignty has us in the Bible? What is today, brothers? Valentine's Day. And what does Valentine's Day focus on? Love. Okay. I didn't plan the timing of these messages. I never do. I just preach them and, and try to stay on course. And in the normal outflow of where we were today, God shows you a deep contrast between the love of the world and the love of Christ. Because I can tell you right now, there's not a marriage on planet Earth that has made it very long without applying these principles in their marriage, period. So today, God, I believe, says to us, on this Valentine's Day, are we going to focus on the biblical love that Christ brought us in himself? Or are we gonna focus on whatever this worldly, erotic love is that is really more like lust in the world and the material things and the sensibilities and the, the sentimentality. I mean, wh which one are we gonna stake our claim in our lives on? Which one?
We're gonna stake our lives on biblical, sacrificial love. Love that lays its life down for its friends. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for today. I thank you for how clear your word is on this, Lord, and I know these are difficult passages, and I know that, that it, act, it, it commands us, your word commands us to behave in ways that we're just not used to. We're not used to saying no when people ask us to go do things. We're not used to pulling our fellowship from people as the Bible tells us to, to withhold our fellowship from people, our professing believers that are in sin. But Father, your word is very clear. It's for a higher purpose. It is for the, the safety and security of that person's soul. That is what it's for. And that hopefully when they are removed from fellowship or when you don't fellowship with them and they get a good taste of the horrors and the trials and the tribulations of the world, they will come back to you. Come back to true love, true sacrificial love that has demands, that has accountability, that brings correction and maturity and fruit. And so Father, today as we close this time, I pray that everyone listening today would focus their lives on this over the next week. Maybe there's somebody in their life that there's still a major issue with that person. Something happened a long time ago. I pray that we as believers would lead the way in making the effort out to pray and to see where that heart is. And Lord, they may, they may be right where we left off. They may still be away from God. They may still be cursing the church or not believing in Jesus or, or leaving the church, whatever their situation may be, Father. We pray that your Holy Spirit, your power would change that heart and bring that heart home to you. Because that is ultimately the purpose of discipline according to the Bible. It's not to put them out, but it's ultimately to bring them in. And so Lord, we ask today that you would help us, Lord, through the power of your spirit to enable us to be strong enough to exercise these doctrines in our own lives.